This is Psychic Warfare. Welcome back, my friends, to Psychic Warfare, the podcast where spirituality and philosophy collide with heavy metal and rock and roll. I am your host, Chris Keelick, and thank you for joining me once again on another journey into the lives and minds of the most iconic musicians, and in this case, uh, philosophers, in heavy music. Just as a reminder, if you enjoyed the podcast and these conversations with the artists and philosophers you love, it would mean the world if you subscribed and followed the podcast on your platform of choice. Also, you can follow me and the show at Pod on Twitter and at Psychic Warfare Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. So if you get a chance, follow the show there for updates and happenings on all things Psychic Warfare. This week, we are shaking things up a bit yet again as we feature an actual philosopher and metalhead on the show, Dr. William Irwin, professor of philosophy at King's College in Pennsylvania and editor and contributor of Metallica and Philosophy, author of The Meaning of Metallica, as well as a myriad of other books that tackle philosophy, both through his own original thought and through the lens of pop culture and music. You know, from The Matrix to The Simpsons the Black, to Black Sabbath, Dr. Irwin has delved into the deeper philosophical ideas found in all of it. But Metallica remains his greatest love in the metal world, and he has dug deeper than anyone out there into the lyrics of the great James Hetfield. I've been excited at the prospect of reaching out and speaking to Dr. Irwin for months, so it is an absolute pleasure to have him here today. Dr. Irwin, uh, welcome to Psychic Warfare, and it's a pleasure to have you here today. Hey, thanks, Chris. Please call me Bill, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, you know, I've, I've listened to you before and talking to musicians. I'm always in awe of musicians, so... I'm talking to somebody who's talking to musicians, at least that gets me uh, in the circle. So that's I'm, cool. I am incredibly flattered, uh, obviously. And, you know, we've talked about this uh, when we were just kind of corresponding to set this up, uh, our Buffalo connection. So I'm just going to get all the Buffalo references out of the way right off the bat. So, Bill, you went to school and you got your Ph.D. in philosophy from the University of Buffalo. And today uh, I am wearing my uh i'm not sure if i can't see my own picture on the screen for some reason but i'm wearing my my kill em all shirt yeah um, I see it. today and which was recorded uh, in rochester new york i'm not sure how right. many metallica fans know that which is only an hour ish away from buffalo so i think it's really cool that that city and i guess the western new york kind of area in general has uh, a part in metal history and in your history certainly thrash metal history at least yeah yeah and I th they had a stop in buffalo i believe on the ride the lightning tour so that's pretty early on uh getting to, to buffalo itself too so there's the, there's all those Buffalo and Western New York references out of the way. So with that being said, you know, I always start, as you know, from listening, you know, how are you feeling at this moment in time, mentally, physically and spiritually? Oh, hey, at the moment, I feel great. I just uh, I just worked out uh, and took a nice hot shower. So I, I'm, I feel great. Uh, and I'm looking forward to a great conversation. Uh, but feeling great. Uh, this too shall pass. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. That's it. You know, what was the bad? They both pass. <laughs> That's it. A hundred percent. I got to remind myself of that sometimes. You know, what was what was obviously your professor of philosophy now, but what was your spiritual and personal philosophical upbringing like? You know, did you grow up in a household that held a certain faith? You know, was spirituality something personal that you developed and discovered on your own? Like, where did the the interest and the the desire to dive into all, you know, kind of philosophies and spiritual beliefs, you know, come into play in your life? Yeah. Uh, so I, I was raised Catholic. I, I don't know that my uh, parents were hardcore serious about it. My mother took us to church uh, on Sundays. 
Uh, and my father, you know, came along uh, when I was when I got a little older. We, we would uh, go to church with my father too. And but more of an impact was having gone to Catholic school in particular. Well, grade school and high school were the most formative in that way. I went to Catholic grade school and uh, had the nuns and and all that. Uh, and you know, fr frankly, that was scarring <laughs> for me. <laughs> uh, you know, this was in the 1970s, and Vatican II was back in the 60s, but I don't think word had reached. Uh, I've heard horror yet. stories from my father, who also grew up Catholic. So, uh huh. Uh, so there's a lot of you know, it was more about uh, making sure you don't go to hell than anything else. At least that's the way. I heard it. Of course, people who sat in the same classroom with me didn't hear it that way. Uh, but I guess I was very serious minded uh, from a very young age. Anyway, th then I went to, to high school and, and had the good fortune of going to a Jesuit high school and being taught by some Jesuit priests as well as uh, lay teachers. Uh, and they were really radical by contrast to the old school nuns and starting in freshman year. Uh, we were uh, basically taught things that the Bible says that aren't exactly true and, and how the Bible was written and, and why and by whom and what historical context. And uh, none of this was meant to uh, eliminate uh, the student's faith, but that's precisely what it did in my case, mm. uh, you know. Uh, it got to the point where I couldn't rationally believe uh, even the bare bones uh, of, mm. of the Christian story. And uh, that uh, catalyzed uh, what you would probably call an existential crisis, right? Where what's the meaning of my life? What's it all about? Uh, it was tangled up with depression and later uh, alcoholism and you know, sent me on a quest, and uh, I'm still questing. Although I've, uh, I've, I'm not uh, uh, unsettled the way that I was in those years. That's for sure. But still, the eternal student of life, for sure. And I know that you've mentioned. Uh, you know, I, I, I finished listening to your uh, appearance on on Metal Up Your podcast. You were just on there not that long ago. Uh, this morning, and uh, I finished your well, both of your books. But there's so much material to cover. I finished. I I re, re went through um the first one, the Metallica and Philosophy book, which you edited with, which has a lot of great essays in it. But you've you've talked about how you teach a lot of general philosophy courses, but your your passion uh is is existentialism. And so I wanted to ask you, you know, what do you find yourself believing at this point in your life that guides how you view the world and how you carry yourself in it? Like what feels most true to you and your existence you know i i you did say in in your appearance and metal up your podcast that you are an atheist um but i would imagine that perhaps a lot of existentialist principles of like kind of you know crafting your own meaning and you know doing the best you can to to live your authentic life in in this world the best you can without any sort of sense of greater purpose beyond that uh, probably resonates with you but that that's right i mean that that's what was incredibly troubling and upsetting to me uh, when I lost my faith as a, as a young man, as a high school student, that, you know, how could I possibly live and make sense of, uh, of the world? The world is a pretty awful place in many ways, as, uh, even if uh, life is going pretty good for you. <laughs> you know, it's got a lot of uh, stuff going on. But uh, it, it's, you know, I've, uh, I've made friends with the void, I guess. Uh, <laughs> You know, it, it, it no longer is a yawning uh, abyss. 
and uh, I, I live uh, my life uh, valuing individual freedom, individual responsibility, crafting uh, my own meaning, finding purpose, uh, without the need for it to be uh, enduring because nothing really ever lasts uh, and without the need uh, more and more for applause and that kind of thing. And I'm, I'm very much uh, a fan of the idea of enlightened self-interest. You know, I, I draw on all kinds of uh, different philosophies uh, and I teach a course in Eastern philosophy and something that uh, that Confucius claimed, uh, and he's not uh, a figure who's uh, often tied to enlightened self-interest because Confucianism is such a, a communitarian and community-based philosophy that uh, people don't think to make the connection. But he claimed that by the time he was 70, he could do whatever he wanted and it was the right thing. Uh, <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I, love that. I, I, I feel like I'm 53 right now. I don't I don't think I'll make it there by the time I'm 70. Uh, and I hope I live then and I hope I'll live a lot longer than that. Uh, but I, I feel like I'm heading in that direction, at least. Right. Where uh, what is in my uh, self-interest, I see more and more uh as uh, in the broader uh interest of uh, of the people i love and care about in the broader world that's really awesome to hear like that's i've never heard that quote before i resonate with so much that despite i'm, I'm i just turned 30 i'm i'm you know not nearly you know not there yet and I, I i don't know if i'll ever get there like you said but so much of that already resonates with me and you know i want to go i'll go back to that later specifically in terms of james hetfield um and maybe sharing the maybe perhaps that he shares some of that um, but, you know, I, my initial presupposition for starting this podcast was that at some level, you know, we're all searching for meaning and a higher truth in life. And but on a more like down to earth level, we're searching for practices and, and beliefs that can make our existence within ourselves and with others easier, kinder, better for everyone. You know, and talking to musicians in general about the practices and beliefs that they have that have helped shape them and connecting those to, to philosophical and spiritual teachings. But I worked under the premise that I think metal and metal heads, perhaps probably maybe due to my own bias of loving the genre have more of a predisposition to really think critically and introspect as I find a lot of metal, very introspective in both inwardly and outwardly emotional and analytical at the same time, if that makes sense. I, I, I think that's very right. I was uh, going to say, do you agree with this? Or do you think this is just a product of like my own bias and kind of singling out like metal as like this, you know, particularly introspective, emotional and analytical genre? Well, I mean, we may both be biased and I'm sure <laughs> we both are biased, but uh, I, I think it certainly does. Uh, it, it does present that way. And uh uh, I, I'm not as up to speed on uh, on metal that's been, you know, except I'm, I'm, I, my, my ability to listen to newer bands just uh, disappeared on me uh, at some point. Uh, and I wish it hadn't. I've, I've made the effort. But but certainly the, the metal bands that I you know love and treasure and uh, that certainly is true of them. And I've been listening to your podcast and it certainly is true of the artists uh, who you've uh, you've interviewed uh, and listen, there are other genres that, that can make uh, a case too, punk and 
uh, some, oh, for sure. uh, some subgenres of country and some parts of, uh, of hip hop. Uh, but let's just say it, it breaks away from the, uh, the dominant mainstream uh, of pop music, at least pop music these days. Again, probably my own bias, but I agree because, you know, so many times I find myself asking, like, are metalheads actually going to be interested in this? And like, are they, you know, are, are they going to like pull stuff away from from these conversations? But I have to look at it through my own lens of, you know, if I was, you know, I've always wanted to connect deeper with the musicians that I admire and be like, you know, what, I could be friends with him. Like, I, I believe in the same things that they believe in or like, that's a really good idea that that they guided this person that I admire. Maybe I can use that and make my life easier. And treat people better or like, you know, build myself up in some sort, in some way. So that's, that's really in, and metal metal for me has always been, you know, people say, you know, it's a good way to, to, to outlet feelings of anger or, you know, negative feelings in a, a safe environment. And for me, it was, it, it never really was that it certainly maybe had some of that appeal, but for me, it, it gave a very shy and kind of uh, awkward person a sense of self-power not to lord over other people but just like you know what like I, I can do this like I feel good like to me that's that was the one of the most transformative experiences of my life and so that's kind of what I wanted to give back to to people um and I'm, I'm curious if you had an experience like that oh How, yeah no right I, yeah. I, I think that's common I mean metal really means something to fans you know in a way that other music just doesn't. Uh, I mean, I, I guess there are country fans who embrace other country fans and some hip hop fan, but you you find out somebody else is a, a fan of metal, you you've automatically got a bond, uh, even if uh, they're of a different generation and like a different subgenre, uh, and and it's 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 got something to do uh, with the, the way it really means something to uh, to the person and a lot of metal fans uh it it really is just the music itself and they don't tune in uh much to the lyrics uh but there are uh plenty and enough for whom the music means a lot. not just the music but the lyrics mean a lot and for me it was uh right from the beginning both therapy and poetry uh to uh to really tune into the into the metal uh lyrics and i yeah. think we're not alone in that yeah and i wanted to ask <laughs> following up on that you know going into the metallica world you know can you remember the first time a metallica lyric a james hetfield lyric really I, th and this might be a stretch but it may not be really challenged your beliefs or made you reassess a facet of your own life or you're just like damn like that's I never thought of things that way, or I'm not looking at the world the way he is, but that's an interesting perspective that I need to consider. Well, I, I'm, I'm not sure that I felt challenged uh, by anything right off the bat, uh, <clears throat> but uh, really resonated with. Uh, and of course, uh, he was and still is far better than I am in putting things into words, never mind into melodies and, uh, and riffs and, and everything else. So, I mean, the very first song uh, from Metallica that, that touched me uh, was Fade to Black, uh, mm. which, you know, is basically a suicide song, but not one uh, that is meant to encourage suicide, right? Uh, it provides that sort of emotional catharsis uh, and the sense uh, that one should carry on uh, and keep fighting as long as one uh, possibly can. That's a yeah. theme that really runs 
throughout the lyrics. Uh, and so, I mean, I, I, I've through the years found that, uh, that, you know, he's uh, expressing things uh, that resonate with me uh, and of course, putting them into words and lyrics and melodies and riff accompanied by riffs that I never could. So. So I wanted to to lead off by saying there's so much I want to talk to you about. And I'm, I hope that we can get you on the podcast again, because, again, I was thinking there's so much material and, you know, we don't have all the time in the world that maybe today what we could do is I'd love to talk mostly about uh, the first book that you had a big hand in, which was the, the Metallica and philosophy book, which you edited. And then maybe we, I would love to have you on again to go deeper into the book that you wrote. Um, because that's also awesome. And there's so many other different ideas in that that I'd love to tackle. But uh, if that's okay with you, I'd love to focus on on this Metallica and philosophy. Yeah, book first sure. off, sure. Um, because finishing up the metal up your podcast episode, and it's mentioned in the book, the lyric from of wolf and man, you know, in wildness is the preservation of the world. So seek the wolf in thyself. The, the first like really big topic that I think is led off in this Metallica and philosophy book, which everybody should read, it's awesome, um, is the search for authenticity and kind of Metallica espousing living authentically and being your most authentic self and the struggle to, to discover what that means to you and, and to embrace that. And I interpret that quote. I mean, Clint might've interpreted differently in the podcast, but I interpret that quote to be about living authentically, like not having fear of conforming and a total sense of self power and confidence, like seeking the wolf in thyself is like a lack to me. It struck me as like a lack of fear and going forth and and living authentically, I'm curious. Like, does that does that resonate with you? Do you feel a little bit of that's what Hetfield is kind of getting at in that quote? Versus, how oh yeah, made? yeah, right. There there is uh, the wild side, uh, you know that that we all have, and and that civilization and just living in society calls for us to sort of repress. I mean, we, we certainly. Uh, let it out at a concert, uh, you know, getting in the mosh pit or, or yelling or singing or uh, doing whatever we may do, right? And, uh, you know, those who indulge may uh, let that out after having uh, a few too many and, uh, and that kind of thing. Uh, but what's interesting about that song of Wolf and Man, right, is that the, uh, the setting is basically hunting, right, uh, which is something uh, that uh, Hetfield uh, really enjoys mm -hmm. and and there's something about being out in nature uh, that's uh, not only healing uh, but transforming and and gets you back in touch with the side of what it is to be a human being an authentic human being uh, that we're you know sort of asked to rein in and compromise on a repeated basis you know starting from sitting up straight in Catholic school and uh, learning to get my cursive handwriting, uh, you know, which I never got terribly good still, at. I'd rather type. I still still can't do it to this day. <laughs> no, no. So, you know, and, and fuck it, right? <laughs> yeah. I don't need it. Um, And I wanted to, you know, because this isn't this in this book, at least it's not explicitly discussed. But, you know, I, I think about James Hetfield in that song and I, I want to know how this, how what you think about your impression of him. He seems, especially at this phase in his life, he's really pulled kind of a lot of like transcendentalist philosophy, you know, talking about in this song. I mean, this is was this isn't like a current song, but 
talking about in nature, but he's always someone who he lives out in like, I think it's like Montana or a state like that. Will, uh, Wyoming he's in or Colorado, Colorado now. Colorado. Yeah. I know it was one of those really right, beautiful natural with, uh, with political correctness in the Bay area. Moved to Colorado. Yeah, yeah. But surrounded by, by nature, mountains, you know, rivers. It just strikes me that he's someone who's always found solace uh, in nature and, and express expressed, in his music, the, the the beautiful qualities that kind of connecting on a on a primal level with that stuff. Yeah, I, don't, I, I mean, always would be a long uh, would would be a stretch, I think. And I yeah. think he discovered it uh, in his in his twenties. Uh, I, I must have misspoke. I certainly don't. I mean, I mean, like definitely for some time. I yeah. think. Well, sure, for some time, right? Yeah, I mean, the Black Album. You know, we're we're going back uh, in, into the early '90s there, so yeah. But yeah, what do you time. think? What specific kind of transcendental ideals and philosophies do you kind of see in his his worldviews and his 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 writing, his lyricism over time? Oh wow! Uh, so I I should say first off that that I don't uh, he's not a highly educated person. I'm not sure how much reading uh, he does, particularly <clears throat> in philosophy. Uh, so I think it's quite possible to, to reinvent the wheel and, uh, and sometimes even improve on it. And I, I, he's a poet, uh, more than a philosopher. Uh, and so I, I wouldn't want to say that he's drawing on existentialism or drawing on, uh, transcendentalism or, or any of those, uh, isms so much as you sometimes see them, uh, manifested uh in the songs right uh and i, I think uh, from the beginning there's a strong concern uh with freedom and uh and authenticity and uh th those are the themes uh that begin from the rallying cries of kill them all you got your kill them all shirt on there which is basically a mission statement and lots of uh we second person uh, first person plural lyrics there right where it's not only the band but uh, forming a metal militia or an army and yep. that kind of thing, right? And uh, he used to talk uh, in concert about uh, going out and causing a little senseless destruction <laughs> before playing uh, Seek and Destroy, right? And there's yep. that kind of juvenile, uh, adolescent, uh, fuck you rebellion uh, that we see on, uh, on Kill Em All. And it, then it, you know, it develops, um, becomes more self-reflective uh, very early in the career uh, with Ride the Lightning and, and going forward. Uh, and I see real existentialist uh, themes of freedom, responsibility, authenticity that can be traced throughout the albums, uh, but uh, really from early on. Uh, following up on going back to that that theme of authenticity, there's a great essay in the book by Thomas Niss, I hope I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, that talks about John Stuart Mill, who was a, a 19th century British utilitarian philosopher and his ideas of authenticity and an authentic life, and that it isn't just about, you know, momentary pleasures. It requires activity, not passiveness. And in your eyes, and perhaps in James Hetfield's eyes, you know, how can we distinguish? And you know, I was thinking about this question. Uh, I remember I watched this video of George Lucas, and he was talking about kind of the morals that are encompassed in, in Star Wars, especially in the, the prequels. Uh, of contentment versus joy, where, where like contentment is the short term, the passing pleasures of life, whereas jo true joy, which is it's longer lasting and ultimately the, the most fulfilling kind of happiness and authenticity. So how can we distinguish? How can we have the, the wherewithal of ourselves to be like, OK, is this a 
a passing moment of pleasure? Am I really living an authentic life by, by, by am I chasing some, some short-term thing or, or am I experiencing, is this a long-term joy? Yeah. So th that's, that's a great question. Let, let me just say for, for listeners who aren't familiar, uh, the book that Chris is referring to Metallica and philosophy is one uh, that has 20 plus chapters uh, to it. And, and they're all written by different philosophy professors uh, and, and scholars. Uh, I wrote a chapter myself in the introduction, et cetera. Uh, but uh, I want to give props to everybody else who was involved in that. Uh, For sure. Thomas Nice or Nis. Now that you say it, I'm not sure uh, <laughs> how to pronounce uh, his last name. Right. But there, that's an important point. Uh, about activity uh, and passivity, right? Uh, because there is sometimes this picture of what happiness is, uh, is just the consumption of pleasure, uh, which is uh, relatively passive, right? If you think of the, uh, you know, sitting uh, at the uh, beach resort while somebody brings you a drink and you lounge by the pool and whatever, I mean, that, that's very passive. Uh, and it's pleasurable and, and enjoyable, but it's really not very sustainable. And, uh, I, you know, I think what Metallica has been about uh, from the beginning is, uh, is rather than simply, I mean, they like to kick back and have a good time for sure. I mean, who doesn't, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the pursuit of something, right? Uh, even if you don't know uh what it is that you're after right and this sort of harks back to the uh idea from confucius that i had uh, mentioned uh, at the beginning right where uh you're young uh and uh what seems to be most important is whatever sex drugs rock and roll for sure uh but uh the things that are more passively consumed rather than some kind of longer term pursuit and this is something you have to give metallica you know lots of credit for uh even though different people uh slam them for their changes of direction at one point or another uh they started off uh not trying to find the easiest way to success there was real artistic credibility they, you know, essentially uh, invented uh, a new genre uh, of music or subgenre. Uh, they uh, didn't bow to uh, whatever forces would have them uh, commercialize it. Uh, Master of Puppets came out, MTV, and everybody is clamoring for a video. They won't do it. Uh, so there was always uh, this sort of long-term vision uh, of uh, artistic integrity and the pursuit of uh, actualizing a voice and a sound uh, that is more important uh, than just uh, taking a shortcut and, and grabbing uh, the prize before it's fully earned. How can we like identify that? Like, have you have strategies in your own life where you stop yourself and you say, okay, uh, and I know you, you've gone on record in, in the podcast and in and, and other places about you struggled with with alcoholism just like James did. So I'm sure you both had a, had a moment of or multiple moments of being like, hey, like this, this is a just a passing thing. And I struggle with this and I have to break out of that. But how can we even if we don't struggle with something like that, how can we identify like, am I on a path that is long term, authentically fulfilling 
or am I am I at the the mercy of my emotions or the chemicals in my body, and that's kind of tricking me? Like, what are do you have strategies that you employ to kind of be cognizant of that? You know, it, it's it's easy uh, to see it in somebody else, and it's hard to see it uh, in myself. And it, it's it's also easy for me to see it when I look back on myself as a younger person and say, you know, how foolishly I was living then and uh, what I was thinking then, et cetera. Uh, but I've become skeptical uh, of that kind of negative view of, hmm. of, of the earlier version of myself, uh, more forgiving in the sense that I think that there, there are kind of foolish attitudes and mistakes that are appropriate uh, at earlier stages uh, of life. And so, I mean, at, at various points, for example, I, I pushed harder than now seems uh, sensible to try to uh, be more of a success as a writer and author uh, than, uh, than was really, uh, you know, in my grasp. And, you know, it, it, it gets to the point where it's just very unfulfilling uh, to uh, be at the mercy of sales numbers or reviews and it, how unkind uh, I'm being to myself that way. So uh, just as I'm articulating it out loud mm. now, uh, that's what's crystallizing for me is, do I feel like I'm abusing myself when I look mm. at uh, what I'm doing. And, and clearly that was the case uh, with my drinking at a certain point. And certainly it had become that way uh, with pursuit of, uh, well, I mean, fame is, is almost too grand of a word for, for, the, for what I was pursuing. But, you know, I did have some uh, wild dreams, uh, as many of us do, right? Uh, and it just becomes a matter of, of self-abuse. Somehow, very early on in life, uh, it became clear to me that the pursuit of money uh, was a sort of self-abuse. Mm. And so I never uh, went down that route. And I've always been kind of judgmental of people who, who have. Uh, but now as I look at it, uh, I'm, I'm less judgmental and more understanding about why that might be uh, an appealing route for somebody. Because everybody thinks, well... You know, I, I, at some point I'll get to having enough uh, and, and then I'll stop, of course. Right. Uh, and, and the problem is if, if enough is never enough, even when you get enough, uh, then, you know, you're really abusing yourself. That's really awesome. That's an awesome, awesome answer. And thank you for that. And one of my one of my favorite philosophical topics of all time is, is morality. And that's mentioned in a few essays in the Metallica and Philosophy book, but it's most notably in uh, an essay called Humans and Metal Gods by Niall Scott. I think one of our greatest mental struggles in this world is how we see a lot of each other interacting and treating our fellow humans. You know, we have to exist in this world with other people. And that essay speaks a lot about one of my favorite philosophers, Immanuel Kant, and his dissections of morality is a battle between reason and desire and a battle between our natural inclination to be unsociable, but we also need other people. But he does express that it is a moral obligation to to help others in need. We don't necessarily have to like doing it, but it is a moral, according to him, a moral obligation. And I, I have the book literally in my hands because there's so many amazing quotes in here that I just want to make sure that I get right. 
and one of them is, you know, he talks about how uh, feelings can't be, you know, a, a uniform standard of good and evil. Uh, he talks about how uh, humans have a predisposition to good, but it can be twisted and evil, twisted to evil by taking moral incentives and turning them into something bad. And he talks about, you know, uh, diabolical vices of culture, like envy, jealousy, rivalry, ingratitude, joy, and others' misfortune, which unfortunately I think we see a lot of yeah, in today's world. And uh, there's so much information, in, again, in this essay, I, re I highly recommend everybody go read it. But even in early, even in the earlier essay about that, talking about John Stuart Mill earlier, you know, he talks about the only way power should be exercised exercised over a society by a government is the ability to prevent harm in others. And I think my point is this: I always wonder because living authentically is one thing, but everybody has an own their own definition of that, and it's talked about in this book many times. Like you can only create your own definition, but the problem I think lies in when the way you authentically express yourself harms other people or restricts other people's right to exist or to be their most authentic self. And there's a quote um, from Disposable Heroes that is mentioned about uh, bodies fill the fields. I see hungry heroes end, no one to play soldier now, no one to pretend. And it, it talks, the, the sentence right after that I underlined, which is, if we were all committed to performing heroic acts, it would lead to no one attending to the everyday practical things we need to function and flourish. And then I wrote right below that, but what it uh, but what if it prevents, but what if it basically, what if the practical needs aren't being met? Like we don't have to have heroic deeds. Like a lot of people's practical needs in this world aren't being met. And a lot of people just ignore it or again, find joy in others' misfortune. And, but they're like, Hey, I'm living my authentic life. Like, and a con talks about that. Like, what do I, what, what if I see someone suffering and I don't need to care about that. But he says like, that's like morally unjust. And I'm curious about your thoughts on that. And how do we, I don't even know how to phrase the question. How do well, we I think deal I with get, that? I think I, <laughs> yeah. I think I get where you're going. I mean, yeah. uh, speaking as uh, not only a recovering alcoholic, but a recovering asshole, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I've been the authentic asshole. Uh, you could justify a lot uh, in that, hey, I'm just being uh, myself. I'm just living the way that's true to me, etc. cetera. Uh, and that's that that does end up uh, harming a lot of people and i've i've come to believe uh with very few exceptions uh some people who who are psychopaths who who cannot feel uh the you know compassion right. for others that they do exist but uh, when i harm someone else uh i harm myself uh and and so being the authentic asshole uh, and justifying it in the sense of, listen, I'm not doing anything that really uh, hurts you. Suck it up and, and, and whatever. Uh, there's no way that that doesn't uh, get stuck uh, in my craw uh, and in the back of my mind as well. And so I've come to think more and more that it's just the, the truly enlightened self-interest. And if it's my self-interest to be uh, authentic. Uh, the, uh, the the way in which it's most in my self-interest to be authentic is in a way that really doesn't harm uh, other people uh, and that recognizes everybody else is going through their own shit. Everybody's fighting the battle that I know not if, nothing of, as the quote says, and, uh, and all of that. And 
your, your reference, uh, John Stuart Mill and, and the harm principle, right, which basically uh, is that a government shouldn't be involved uh, in restricting the behavior of adults unless it causes harm. Uh, and there's debate about what. Yeah, that's a harm. very hard term to define. It is. Yeah. Uh, although in in our times, I think there there's an important difference to the between harm and defense. Yeah. Kant and, would say like it's any things any rational person can agree on. But then again, what does that mean in any sense, you know? Yes. And yeah. uh, right. Not everybody. Not everybody is. Uh, is Maybe through our eyes, not everybody's rational, at least. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and uh, you know, more and more people take uh, offense uh, at things uh, and uh, claim to be harmed by it. And uh, l- listen, that, that, that's taking it a little bit far. Uh, but it, it, that does gesture at the, some of the, uh, the social thought that does run through uh, Metallica's lyrics from uh, a lot of the anti-war songs or at least songs that can be interpreted as uh yeah. as showing the dark side uh, of war namely disposable heroes that- and very much so i think you know getting into the the existentialist stuff it's very much the nietzsche stuff where it's like these are these institutions of religion or government or media or whatever it is that are indoctrinating you know large groups of people on mass to think a certain way and to not question and they don't have that not that they're not rational, but they they lose that sense of like identifying. Am is what I'm doing like genuinely harming other people? Am I delighting in other people's misfortune? Like, and is this harming myself? Like, they're kind of brain, brain not brain. I don't even want to. I don't know if I use the term brainwash, but influenced by institutions. Metallica oh, sure. is against indo- that forever. You're indoctrinated, uh, and th- this calls to mind. I mean, we 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 not we we become sheep pretty uh, quickly and pretty easily whether uh, you know in, in the religious realm or the political realm uh, and so calling to mind uh, the uh, the lyric that you had brought up before about seek the wolf in thyself right yeah. that's a nice contrast uh, to the sheep uh, and uh, in in of wolf and man uh, it's taking the fallen lamb uh, right which is symbolic of uh, of Christianity in a way, right? Don't be, uh, don't be a sheep, (laughs) you know, you know, before we go any further, I'm curious, I love this term that you've been using and I've never really heard it expressed that way. Can you define it uh, uh, in at least to what it means to you a little more clearly the enlightened self-interest? Like what does that entail to you besides the, the Confucius, uh, quote from earlier, but I'm curious to define that a little more. Right. Uh, so self-interest uh, it gets uh, a pretty bad rap uh, because it gets quickly uh, equated with pure selfishness, right? So just uh, a, a, as a basic uh, example, uh, there's one donut left. Uh, is it, uh, it'd be selfish for me to grab the donut and not leave it for my wife, right? Particularly, I know if she wants it, right? Uh, it'd be in my self interest, but would it be in my self interest? Uh, maybe not. I've got to think about that a little bit more, right? Because I want to get along with my hmm. uh, wife, right? Uh, and the more broadly uh, that I reflect on the uh, the consequences and implications uh, of my actions, enlightened, not kind of uh, brute uh kind of gimme caveman take it uh sort of attitude toward life and other people uh the more i come to see that well uh 
it, it really uh, encompasses uh, the people who are on my team. Uh, my wife is on my team. My children are on my team. Who else is on my team? Uh, and the larger uh, that circle uh, starts to become, you know, the more what at least appears to be sacrifice, not eating the donut, turns out to be, well, that's really the best thing uh, overall for me. Not in the moment, it's not going to satisfy uh, my uh, desire for the sugar in the moment, uh, but it really is the best thing for me, even though it looks like it involves a sacrifice. And so if you go back from that, that to that line from Confucius, uh, by the time he's 70, it's no longer difficult. It's no longer a sacrifice. I mean, they didn't have donuts when he was talking, but uh, to leave the donut, that's exactly what I want to do. Yeah. Uh, so it's more broad, expansive, bigger picture, long run thinking. That is incredibly Fascinating because in the Metal Up Your Podcast interview, and you, th there's this quote from James that's brought up where he says, "I he says I he wants to be a servant," yes. um, and I love that because I I think have you seen kind of this? Do you think that that's kind of the crux of it? Is that there's been perhaps a rise of selfishness rather than a rise of that enlightened kind of or, or self interest, but you know that the self interest still leaves room for again, compassion for other, a lot of other people and their battles and not, and oh, uh, it, like what it they're dealing with. Throughout uh, Hetfield's history and, and his lyrics where, I mean, uh, you know, he had been manipulated uh, by his, uh, his father was a very domineering figure. Uh, and that's the sort of model that he internalized uh, that love is control uh, to quote the, quote the lyric. Uh, and you see this in uh, in the song King Nothing, which they're playing again in concert these days, which is cool. And it's all over the uh, the new album, as well as in other songs from the back catalog, uh, that uh, he's being selfish uh, in a way that turns out not to be in his self-interest. Right. Yeah. What, what, what ends up happening? Uh, Jason Newstead leaves the band largely because he can't deal with him. Uh, you know, uh, a, a, a marriage ends in divorce, uh, friendships are strained, right? People don't really like me uh, as much as I thought, right? Uh, all of that uh, that happens. And, uh, you know, I, I see profound developments uh, in him as a person uh, across time uh, to the point where, as you mentioned, uh, he has tried uh, to conceive of playing uh, concerts and probably uh, other things as well uh, as uh, service to others. Now, that could sound really egotistical, like you're so lucky uh, to see me. Uh, but I, I believe what he means by that is that uh, instead of doing it because uh, that's what gratifies my ego. Yeah, it's like I give of myself. Applaud, uh, that in, instead, uh, I'm tuned into the fact that so many people uh, traveled so far to be here. Some of these people have never seen uh, me before, heard this song before. Uh, all of that kind of thinking, you know, which I would characterize as uh, as part of enlightened self-interest. Yeah, exactly. And oh, man, you're tying right into the next thing I wanted to go into on page 157 in the essay uh, Fade to Black, which is mostly about suicide. But 
there's a great quote from James Hetfield that I'm going to read where he's he's talking about fade to, the lyrics of fade to black. And he says, yeah, well, you can kind of rest on the whole. Well, this is art. So fuck off freedom of speech thing. But when you're up there on stage, anything you say can be taken literally. And you have to be conscious of that. There's a real sick feeling of power when you're on stage. You can start a riot or put everyone to sleep if you want it. On the other hand, as soon as you start being responsible with your lyrics, you start fucking with your integrity. Writing is therapy for me, so fuck everyone else, you know? And he brings up this, this interesting idea about being, if you wield a certain degree of power over people, you have to be cognizant of that and you have to recognize that while still not sacrificing your authenticity. And my question is, you know, how do you think he and Metallica and and we can recognize you know wrestle with this idea of recognizing our own power if we do have power over other people but still be good to each other because you mentioned like who's on my team like how can we better think like hey i don't know this person that you know i i may be just you know in, uh, unconsciously discriminating against or you know i may have this bias towards but how can I see them as like being on my team and treat everyone, you know, on earth with respect and kindness, you know, at least to, at least to a basic degree, obviously a lot of respect is earned and, and all of that, but how can we better recognize when we hold power over someone in some way and teach ourselves not to abuse that while still not sacrificing uh, a sense of integrity or a sense of authenticity. He does talk about everybody in the audience at Metallica show as being the Metallica family. So uh, that, that's right. That's what I was thinking as you, as you were saying that. that that's a big way to think about uh, a team. What's a better team than your family, right? But uh, power, right? The word uh, that you latched onto there, right? There's the, the great uh, Spider-Man quote, right? Of with great power comes mm -hmm. great responsibility. Maybe that's Uncle Ben. That is Uncle Ben. Uh, and uh, for, for the existentialist, with great responsibility comes great anxiety. Uh, and uh, I think this is true of, uh, of Hetfield, that there's real anxiety uh, in wrestling with this, right? He's talking tough when he's saying, fuck everybody, you know, I can't be concerned with that. And it is true uh, that uh, you can't self-censor in uh, a way that's going to deliver an inferior work of art and an inauthentic work of art. But uh, you also need to be responsible uh, for what you put out there. And uh, this is something uh, that uh, he's grown into more and more in uh, not this, I'm not sure if he's doing it on this current tour, but last summer they did the Boston Calling show uh, and he spoke about uh, uh, responsibility and struggle uh, before playing uh, Fade to Black uh, and that he has struggled. And, uh, you know, if you're struggling uh, that you should talk to someone and, you know, I forget the line, but it was well delivered and it seemed uh, it seemed somewhat spontaneous uh, and, uh, and certainly genuine. And uh, on the new album uh, is uh, another song, Screaming Suicide, where mm -hmm. it brings up the, uh, the topic again. I mean, that, that is, is, is real uh, power to have where you're putting out there uh, songs that really do impact people's lives. Uh, and, uh, there is, uh, you know, there's no doubt that uh, songs like that have saved people's lives uh, mm -hmm. and, and saying that kind of thing from the stage, which a younger version of Hetfield wouldn't have felt comfortable doing too touchy feely uh, kind of thing uh, and calling 
uh, you know, the it, it was the metal militia when they started out. Uh, and now it's the family, right? This is pretty, this is a softening, uh, which is good and appropriate, uh, but wouldn't have felt uh, comfortable to, uh, to the younger man, right? And, and yeah. so uh, realizing uh, the impact that we have, and we all have in, in small ways, right? Uh, there's always the ripple effect and the butterfly effect uh, of uh, our smallest interactions uh, with one another. It's good reason to be kind. Earlier, because earlier on, he's always, you, you mentioned that he, as, as he's gotten older, you know, that's, it's been more prevalent to, to, to be that way. But he's never, he's never, and I think even, I would imagine to this day, he's never been shy about calling out those who do abuse the power that they have, like in, in And Justice for All, like the song, like, you know, you have abdicated your responsibility like you said, you have that power, but you have abdicated your responsibility to, you know, the to people who you don't have that power, weaker people, uh, people who are not as fortunate, you know, whether it's greed or, you know, religious leaders or anybody like to call that out. But this is a question I don't know if anybody could answer, but where does that come from? Like, where do people, why do, in your eyes, people lose sight of the people like that have less power than them or ad abdicate responsibility of taking care of people when they need taking care of like where does that come from within us is it an animalistic is hard-baked kind of thing like a, i'm care about me and mine and myself and protecting my pack and um, stuff or does that come from from somewhere else i it's a again morality is it's that question that just fascinates me of how people can sometimes be the way they are especially again if you have the resources to help and you know actively turn a blind eye yeah well i mean this gets back to the the distinction between pure selfishness and and self-interest yeah uh and i guess maybe uh, where does the selfishness develop then i guess you know well right and i, I think uh it develops out of uh out of self-deception i think the the physicist richard Feynman said something like uh you must not fool anyone. And the easiest person to fool is yourself. Hmm. Uh, you know, this is about scientists point. with their, uh, you know, their hypotheses and, and theories, right? And the temptation is, uh, is to look for confirmation, right? We're all subject to uh, seeking confirmation bias. And uh, very few people uh, ever do something and say, this is awful and selfish. Ooh, I'm going to do it uh, <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Even the most ugly and uh, selfish abuses of power uh, tend to be rational. The villain always thinks they're doing the right thing, right? They, they do. Yeah. Uh, at least on some level. But if you're if you're really not and on a deeper level realize that you're causing harm to others, it does stick in there uh, unless you're a total psychopath and, and they do exist. Uh, but there may be 1% of the population or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and listen, it takes its toll over time. It's not a good sustainable strategy uh, to always grab the donut uh, and say, fuck you to everybody <laughs> I love this else. metaphor. <laughs> yeah. How do we introspect deeper? Because I think that that's the thing. I think that, and Metallica challenges a lot of people to think, to to stop and think deeper. And again, not take the impulse and, not pick the selfish path, but I think a lot of people it's, it's so much easier and people have to want to do things to a certain degree. How, but how can we, is there any way we can, someone who is maybe like that and out in the world or struggling with a selfishness, 
how can we introspect into ourselves better and really think, am I hurting myself? Am I hurting others? Like, why am I doing this kind That's of thing? That's right. That's right. And it, it applies to all of us. Uh, you know, I like to say, don't believe everything that you think uh, and uh, write it down and then don't believe everything you read because, you know, that what you're thinking is probably mistaken in, in a lot of ways. Some yeah. of it is the harmful self-talk uh, that we do to ourselves. Oh, I'm such a jerk. Uh, or I'll never make it or whatever, you know, uh, thing I'm saying to myself, but also uh, the awful thing that I'm, I'm saying about the other guy, that what a jerk he is, or uh, nobody is uh, totally uh, suited by any particular label. Uh, there are ways uh, of getting at the truth uh, by becoming aware of what your thoughts are. And, and I believe uh, I do a, a practice of journaling for an hour a day. I'm fortunate to be able to make that space in my life. I know not everybody has uh, that much space, but I think everybody uh, can, can do some uh, daily journaling or writing. And uh, I think that's a fabulous way of really getting a close look at what's going on in your head. And when you see it written down on paper, you can get a little bit of distance from it, uh, not maybe as much as, you, as would be ideal, and say, really? Is that really true? Uh, and that goes a long way over time, the compound interest of time and investing in that kind of practice uh, for uh, improvement. Yeah, and that reminds me a lot of uh, a lot of stoic principles. I'm a big Ryan Holiday fan. He's someone I'd love to have on the podcast eventually because I know he's a big metalhead um, and a huge proponent for stoicism uh, in, in like the modern, <clears throat> you know, kind of pop culture sphere. Um, but he talks about how he journals every day and how it's a, a great stoic principle to analyze your thoughts that way. Um, I want to go back to something that you cover a lot and talk about a lot. And you talk about it in your essay in this book, uh, Christian Warrior Buddhist. It's the trajectory of the band's history and James' lyricism. It very much, in my eyes, mirrors the experiences and growth that you have gone through, you just expressed, and many individuals face. And, you know, it's going from the wild swings of a slightly hedonistic and adrenaline-fueled period, search for authenticity and living, the middle period that couples with a strong distrust of others and institutions and a lot of self-reflection and fear and despair. But then finally in the latter part of their career where he's at right now, I would imagine, uh, and it's extended you know, to the, the 72 Seasons album, I think James has, and, and the band have really found a wisdom of, of balance in all things. It's that middle path that Buddhism embraces that you discuss in your essay, the place between, you know, desire and fear, uh, the place between the the early period and that middle period, it's in the between there. I think a lot of us end up here uh, as we age. And obviously James has gone through a lot and you've gone through a lot uh, with his rehab stints and other personal crises. But do you feel that the majority of people in this world, that this is a natural evolution of our psyche as we age, just due to the kind of accruing of, of experiences in our life? I, I think it is. There's no guarantee of uh, of that progression. You know, some Vikings die as Vikings, uh, <laughs> and some bikers die as bikers, uh, or, or or whatever it may be. Warriors die as as warriors. Uh, but if you're fortunate enough uh, to live through uh, and and learn some lessons. Uh, th this is why I'm, I'm saying uh, that I, I look back on uh, earlier times in my life that previously I would have been more judgmental about 
and say, well, it was it was somewhat natural and, and appropriate uh, at that time. That certainly there's a mellowing uh, that that comes with age. Uh, part of it is hormonal. Uh, part of it is uh, just societal expectations, etc. And uh, with that mellowing, I think comes a, a desire uh, to take a greater uh, sense of responsibility uh, for an increasingly uh, larger uh, swath of the, of the world. Uh, and you know, looking toward old age, which I'm not in yet, but I hope to get to. And uh, Headfield is, uh, is seven years, uh, older than I am. And, uh, I, I hope to learn from him, you know, he's sort of embraced, uh, being kind of an old guy, uh, in a very cool way. I mean, he's never looked better in some ways, you know, he's all jacked up from weightlifting looks great in that way. Yeah. Uh, looks healthy and sober again. Uh, he brought the Lemmy stash back. Yeah. 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 He, he, he looks to me a little bit like, uh, uh Paul senior, Paul Tuttle from American chopper. Yes. From, yes, from exactly. That. Exactly. Yeah. And he embraces that sort of old guy. Pop it's the hell yeah, yeah brother aesthetic. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Instead of, uh, you know, whatever, trying to hold on to a youth. I love that meme. Uh, I love that meme. It's like, is the cure to male loneliness just saying, hell yeah, brother, to everything that's said to you? <laughs> <laughs> Could be. Um, no, I love that. And that's very true. That's very true. And that's a great way, because my last main question before we get into the, the ending sections here is, so after discussing all of this, I've never done this, but I think it's kind of a cool mirror to the beginning questions about yourself. What do you think James Hetfield believes about himself and the world at this phase in his life? Like, what do you think from your analysis of the man and his lyricism, what are the philosophies and principles that he holds closest about this world, how to live in it, and and maybe his personal meaning to it? I would imagine, actually, after talking to you, that it probably has something to do with that enlightened self-interest. Well, I, I don't know, right? I mean, it's dangerous to try to speak for someone else, and I'm certainly projecting my own self and my own wishes uh, for him upon himself and what, whatever answer uh, I give. Uh, but... Yeah, I, I do think uh, that he has a broader perspective uh, on uh, on the world and and how he affects others. And I think he, he, you know he's gone through uh, what has to be a painful divorce. He hasn't spoken uh, much about that. Mm-hmm. He's got to be looking toward uh, older age and uh, you know the diminishment of certain capacities. As fit as he is physically, uh, he had uh, you know he had somewhat of a, I had a very emotional moment. I think it was down in South America last uh, summer where uh, he, he confessed to having uh, concerns about going out on stage because could he play with that masterful right hand and the mm-hmm. down picking uh, the way that he's so famed to and uh, talked about uh, the other guys in the band uh, coming around and giving him a hug and telling him you got this. And, you know, that was totally spontaneous to then talk about it on stage. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's real vulnerability. There's a real sense of, uh, my actions affect other people. There's real wreckage of the past. Uh, and in some cases the, uh, not too distant past that needs to be, uh, cleaned up. Uh, and there's just a, an increasing sense of responsibility that, that I see in him. 100% agree with you. 
Well, Bill, that brings us to our final two segments of the show. So first up is Tomes of Wisdom, where each guest recommends us three pieces of media that have inspired them philosophically or spiritually in the last year. Uh, this can be books, films, games, comics, you know, anything that has made you think about your own life or life in the world in a different way. So, Bill, what are three pieces of media that you've consumed that you would recommend for us to digest? Okay. I'm going to stick to your one-year limitation, uh, okay. and as a result, I'm not going to recommend uh, any books because uh, as, as I look back over what I've read in the past year, it's not that I've read uh, bad stuff, but nothing stands out as recommendable, okay. uh, and that's fine. Uh, so uh, the first thing that I'll, uh, I'll recommend is uh, The Last of Us. Uh, gamers certainly know The Last of Us. Hell yeah. And the first season of the television show. And uh, that, that's that been uh, meaningful for me. I, I might not ever have, uh, have watched it, except that my son, who's now 19, uh, played the video games and loved the video games and is super into them uh, and watching. He was away at college, actually, through most of the, uh, the airing of the, the television episodes. But Watching that while he was away and being in touch with him about it has been super meaningful for me. And there is, a, you know, a, a parental dynamic that goes on uh, in the plot of the, uh, the show and the game, which I won't give away any spoilers, that kind of thing. Uh, and it's uh, actually led to a pet obsession of the and philosophy uh, mm. which is we'll be doing uh, a book on The Last of Us. And really? Yeah. Oh, sick. I am picking that up because I am also a huge Last of Us game fan and show fan. That was me with my wife. My wife had never played the games before. And I was like, oh, man, we got to watch the show then because you're going to love it. So I will definitely be picking that book up. And everybody out there who loves The Last of Us should, too. <laughs> Number two, uh, I'm going to have to say 72 seasons because that's within the past year. That's uh, right. In fact, within the past few months, as we're recording this, the new Metallica <laughs> album, uh, you know, uh, it, it didn't make a big impression on me the first time I listened to it or the second. Uh, but uh, the more I listen to, to it and the more I continue to listen to it, the more it resonates. Uh, and I think it holds together uh, as a complete album in a way that uh, I, I can't for me say that any album has. Uh, by them in uh, in quite some time, mm. and and it, it's very it's very honest and and self searching in in terms of uh, uh, kind of hurt, vulnerability, uh, addiction, uh, despair, uh, all that yeah. good dark stuff uh, that Headfield has wrestled with. I agreed with you and Clint in the podcast when you talked about how it's kind of a it feels like a little bit of return to kind of the load reload era of of introspective James Hetfield lyrics. And uh, here, here's one uh, that everybody can and, and should uh, take a look at because it's only one or two minutes long. Uh, you may not want to uh, necessarily play the video game or watch the show, or you may not. Uh, you may hate on Metallica and uh, not even want to dig on, uh, you know, 72 seasons. But photographer who did the work on 72 seasons has uh, uh, tweeted some videos that he's taken at recent shows. Uh, I think the guy's name is Lee Jeffries, uh, hmm. and you can find uh, you can find his website, which has got cool stuff. But he, if you find him on Twitter, you can find the videos uh, that he's uh, tweeted out. And the the one that that I find most moving, uh, one of the European shows, uh, Hetfield is sitting 
with his hands together and his head down uh, in what appears to be uh, a bit of prayer or meditation, whatever it is that he's uh, doing to commit himself to, to service uh, in the you know, concert he's about to perform uh, and uh, the uh, music to uh, The Ecstasy of Gold begins. Uh, which any diehard Metallica fan will know is the music they play uh, right before they go on stage ever, you know, for a very, very long time, going back to the 1980s. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, he sort of uh, kind of looks up uh, and tunes into it. And uh, there uh, is sort of really nice uh, interaction with fans because the, the shows are in the round and outside. It's not like, uh, he's sitting in a place uh, that's backstage and hidden. A anyway, uh, I can't do it any justice by that description, uh, but it's short and you can find it if you follow Lee Jeffries, uh, LJ something or other on Twitter. Uh, and uh, I find it really moving and I think anybody would. I do too. Just from your description, it sounds like a really powerful moment that you know I'd, I would love to watch. Uh, so people should definitely check that out. And so finally, this is the segment uh, that I like to call The Chaser. So in The Chaser, we ask the same 10 rapid fire questions for each guest. And as you know, I'm sure we ask that they keep their answer to 30 seconds or less. But you also know that I'm not a stickler on that if it goes over. So uh, are you ready, Bill? I'm ready, Chris. All right. Uh, do you believe in fate or free will and why? I believe in free will. I don't think I have any choice. Uh, I think it's a, a user illusion that's built into the system somehow. I, uh, philosophically, I can't see any way that I have it, uh, but experientially and emotionally, uh, I can't find any way not to act as if I do. What is a stronger force in the world, love or hate and why? Probably love just because it's so, so remarkable. There's probably more hate uh, spread out there in little pockets. Uh, but when you have love, that's pretty amazing. Who are the three most important spiritual and moral guides in your life and why? Wow. Uh, I, I, I don't know that I have spiritual or, or moral guides. I probably have more like partners. Uh, I don't like to put anybody on a pedestal these days. My wife is, uh, is certainly... Uh, my most important partner. I don't take the donut. She gets to have it and that kind of thing. And, uh, and I think a lot about my father who passed away 14 years ago, despite his imperfections. Uh, he, he'd know uh, the right thing to do, uh, even if he wouldn't be doing it uh, himself. And uh, usually it boiled down to just uh, uh, don't sweat the bullshit and it's all bullshit, uh, even though he'd be sweating something that was complete bullshit himself. So I try to remind myself of that, particularly when I'm parenting my own son. Mm. That's, that's what I really wish he was here for. Uh, and, and third, I don't know. I mean, uh, I, I had a, a high school guidance counselor, a Jesuit priest, Jack McSherry, uh, who since has passed on, uh, who was very meaningful for mm -hmm. me and uh, uh, may uh, in some small part or big part, quite frankly, have saved my life at that point. Uh, what was the most spiritual place for you where you grew up? And again, I'm sure you know, like this doesn't literally mean like spiritual it can mean just like a place that had a sense of power that you might not have known how to identify it as such at the time. 
Well, this will sound like I'm 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 joking uh, to a lot of people, but Long Island. <laughs> I, I grew up on in Yonkers. Uh, my parents didn't have a very happy uh, marriage. Uh, the house was always in tension, it seemed to me. Uh, and when I go to Long Island for uh, Thanksgiving uh, with my aunt and uncle and cousins there, they they had a very happy house, and it just was something. What is this? This I want to stay. I just kind of want to make this uh, last longer. And it just—it wasn't just that. That uh, just just walking around. Uh, I remember walking around in the mall in uh, in Long Island. I thought, These are my people here. I felt like I belong <laughs> here. I've always felt pretty okay about Long Island, and and I don't really feel connected to a lot of other places. So there you go. That resonates. That's Buffalo for me. So yeah. Uh, yeah. What is the most delicious meal you've had in the last month and where was it? Buffalo, now that you say that, absolutely wins. Yeah. I, I haven't gotten to, to Buffalo if I ha- in, in a while. I would go to Duff's uh, for oh. wings. Uh, some people prefer the anchor. You're spitting bar. truth, folks. Yeah. You're spitting truth. Yeah, there's nothing. Like, I mean, yeah, the further you get from Buffalo, uh, the less good the, uh, the wings are. Somehow you can't replicate it, but... Uh, I, I eat wings every Sunday, just about, uh, and uh, the uh, the place that I like to go during the summer, uh, because you can sit outside and it feels a little bit like uh, you're on vacation somewhere, uh, a place called Keeley's around me here in Pennsylvania, mm. uh, and I always order uh, all flats, I don't like the little drums. Oh, I'm a flat guy, hell oh, yeah! Yeah, I mean, the drums are bullshit. They started throwing in there at the- at There's just, feels like there's more meat on the, in the flats. Yeah, and, and it, it's much easier to get the, sc- the skin crispy. Uh, and I actually like the wings a little bit smaller, so they really crisp up rather than, anyway, I've got very, I've got, I'm a, I'm a wing snob uh, from the short time I spent in Buffalo, about four years. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, uh, wings if uh, i had any wings. real power i would dub you an honorary buffalonian right at this moment <laughs> I, in fact i'm just going to do that i don't All have any right. real power but you are an honorary buffalonian in my oh, eyes for it. sure uh, when was the last time you felt lost uh, geographically i get lost <laughs> all the time i have a terrible <laughs> sense of direction you could put me about a mile away from where i grew up and i wouldn't know where the hell i was <laughs> Uh, and that happened to me in, in Jersey uh, just a couple days ago. Jersey's very easy to get lost in, I find. Uh, I, I haven't felt profoundly lost uh, in, in a long time. Uh, but uh, last year, uh, around this time, uh, I took my son uh, away to college. And, and uh, although it was a happy thing that he was going away to college, I I. I felt a little uh directionless despite the gps Mm. telling me how to get back home (laughs) do you think the universe bends towards order or towards chaos and why well i mean entropy chaos uh it seems everything's falling apart takes a lot of effort to make things stick together what is the most important piece of your childhood that you've held on to and why and again you know that it doesn't have to be a physical thing it can be like an emotional tenet well, people aren't watching this, right? We're not recording video. Video, but I can you can describe whatever it is that you All got. Right, so there you go. Uh, baseball card from uh, the New York Yankees. Uh, I, I grew up a big Yankees fan. The 1977-78 Yankees, even though I've uh, fallen out of love and away from uh, baseball and the Yankees for a long time, 
uh, the 77-78 Yankees are just something that I hold on to and idealize, in particular, the catcher, uh, Thurman Munson. Uh, here's his card. Uh, and, uh, you know, I refuse to watch, like, replays uh, of any of the old games or any of that. I have my seven – I was seven and eight years old, you know, in these magical years when they're winning the World Series, and uh, I have my own child's idea of what that was like. And Nothing so, touches the memories. Nope. Maybe one well. day I'll know the joy of a Buffalo team winning a sports championship. Oh, I can only I, hope. I was I was there in those hard years. They were losing those Super Bowls, man. But the, yeah, I, uh, the my... people of Buffalo are just remarkably resilient. The weather is always going to get better and the Bills are always going to be back next year. There's a great quote from from Tim Russert in the, the Four Falls of Buffalo ESPN 30 for 30 documentary where he says like being like a Buffalo Bills fan and a Buffalonian, it's like the acknowledgement that like under the hardest circumstances or in like the, all the weather and everything that like, that you have a magnificent life that you're proud of. And I wow. like that. that's, that sounds just right. What is one axiom or quote that centers you and calms you in dark times? Well, uh, you know, I, I, I do have some, some little things that I repeat to myself. Uh, actually, before I get out of bed in the morning, and I didn't make this up, I read it in some uh, relatively goofy self-help book, the name of which and the author of which I can't remember to give credit. But I put my hand on my heart uh, in, in bed uh, before I get out of bed, and I say that I am safe, I am loved, and all is fundamentally well. Those three things are true. Mm -hmm. Uh, and they need not necessarily be true. I need not be safe. I could be in a war zone, right? Uh, it could be that I was unloved, uh, but I am loved, uh, and and I really do feel like all is fundamentally well, uh, despite all, everything that can and will go wrong through the course of a day. That's great. That's great. I, I love that. I'm going to remember that. And I guess I got to change up the ending question here. So to <laughs> everyone who has ever been touched by, you know, your writing, you know, even if it's a book that you edited like this one, you know, someone got some some wisdom or changed their life or the way that they think, if that has happened to anybody through that, uh, through your work, directly or indirectly, what do you say to them? Well, I guess please and thank you. Uh, I mean, thank you first uh, for, first of all, reading it. Uh, and uh, please let me know. Uh, it, it's, it's often lonely business uh, writing and uh, I make a habit of trying to get in touch with uh, with people who've written things that uh, that I like, uh, because aside from Stephen King and, and a few uh, really uh, mega giants who can't handle uh, their fan mail, uh, the vast majority of people who write things don't hear very much back from uh, people who read them. And, uh, you know, a person like me, for sure, doesn't think of anybody like that as a fan. Uh, but as a potential friend uh, wow. and would love to hear from you and what you think about it. Love that. Love that. I, I feel, I feel that too. I feel, I, I really hope that we can stay connected. So Bill, you have just engaged in psychic warfare. Thank you so much for joining me today. It truly means the world. Thank you, Chris. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening to Psychic Warfare. If you like content like this for the rock and metal scene, it would mean a lot to me if you could hit subscribe or follow on your podcast platform of choice. Also, you can follow me at Risk with a K on Twitter, and you can follow the show at Pod on Twitter and Psychic Warfare Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you guys again for all the support, and I will see you in the next episode for another round of Psychic Warfare.